Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, Frank. How are you today? I'm well, John. I woke up thinking, I wonder if John's ever had a good result from an OSHA inspection. So, have you? Well, Frank, that's a good question to ask. You know, I think it really comes as a surprise to a lot of folks, but we do have pretty good results from inspections on a pretty regular basis. And, you know, that goes so far as to have inspections where there's been somebody die as a result of something in the workplace and no citations issued. So, you know, it does happen. It happens on a pretty regular basis or a pretty frequent basis. Um, but I, I think that folks typically believe that every time OSHA shows up, they're going to get a citation. And that's just not the truth. So uh, w- without getting too much into the the details of any stories uh, or, or regaling us with uh, tales of your magnificence, John. Uh, in general, uh, what, what, what have you found to be the keys to being successful uh, in terms of managing an OSHA inspection? Well, Frank, I really love to be able to brag on myself a little bit, but in light of the way you set up that question, I'm going to kind of pull back a little bit. I'm not going to tell people how wonderful I am. I think the number one most critical piece is that the employer actually have a good safety program in place to begin with, a good safety program that is actually trained to their employees or that their employees are actually trained to that safety program and that they actually, you know, hold people accountable for that. The second thing is that the employer be prepared for the inspection And part of that preparation is, you know, kind of, you know, having sort of the internal preparations to be able to, to, you know, know who's going to do what and what role they're going to play in the course of the inspection. And then part of that preparation is, you know, basically once something happens, you know, they know where their 300 logs are. They, they, they have the camera to take photos that they're going to duplicate the photos that the co-share are going to take. You know, they have figured out kind of what the lines are they're going to walk so that if there are any, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of sensitive issues or, or sensitive areas, you know, we're avoiding them if at all possible. And then, you know, lastly, you know, just kind of having relationships with the right folks. I mean, it, it helps folks who are going to have an OSHA inspection to, to participate in some of the professional organizations where OSHA is attending or participating, having relationships with, with lawyers that can help them through the process, um, you know, having relationships with safety professionals who can help them w- with the process and, and the abatement afterwards. I think all those things are really helpful in terms of getting a client through a, a situation without um, citations or at least with as, as few citations as possible. So I set you up, and obviously that's one track, right? That's the health and safety enforcement branch of, of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But that's not the only track. There's another track, right? What I assume you're talking about is the whistleblower track. Am I right? 
Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. So we got uh, safety and health enforcement, and then we have the whistleblower track. Well, what's the difference? Well, so the safety and health enforcement is fall protection, it's machine guarding, it's lockout, tagout, it's hazard communication, it's it's all those types of things where you're talking about you know the rules and regulations that apply to place of employment that are going to require that an employer do certain things to protect the health and safety of the employee in the workplace. OSHA is essentially the clearinghouse for whistleblower complaints. And if we're just going to talk about OSHA, that's under Section 11C of the OSH Act that allows employees to raise concerns relative to the health and safety in the workplace. And they're not supposed to suffer any sort of adverse employment consequence for raising those. And, and OSHA, you know, if, if someone is disciplined, if someone is demoted, if someone, you know, suffers some sort of adverse consequence as a result of raising a complaint with their employer, folks will go to OSHA with a whistleblower complaint under Section 11C. I've found that to be a pretty broad definition of what constitutes an adverse employment action. Uh, it, it can be anything that that OSHA deems it is during the course of an investigation let, let me ask you this. Are the investigators for health and safety the same as the investigators for whistleblower? No, they're not. Not at all. Um, that's a completely separate section of the OSHA offices. By completely separate section of the OSHA offices, you're also referring to managers because the management of enforcement, health and safety enforcement, is, uh, is set up uh, differently than the structure of the whistleblower group. And uh, I think that a lot of people get those two confused However, there is a place where the, the two areas merge, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's uh, focus, though, on the way that enforcement is set up. We're in Region 6, and Region 6 includes Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana uh, as federal plan states. We also, our region also includes New Mexico, which is, which is a state plan state. But there are a lot of other state plan states in the country. You want to just give us a summary since I'm terrible at remembering them all? There's actually three categories of states, at least in my jacked up mind, there's three categories of states. So you have the federal states, and I think that's 26 of the states are federal states. Then you have sort of the true state plan states. So those are places like New Mexico, California, Washington, Oregon. And then you have some of these hybrid states. Illinois is the one that always stands out in my mind. Illinois is a federal OSHA state for purposes of the private sector, and it is a state plan state for purposes of the public sector. So in other words, if you're working for a private employer that's not a government entity, you fall under federal OSHA in Illinois. And if you're working for you know, the state, the county, the city, township, whatever the case might be, uh, or some subdivision that that's government, a school district, then you're covered by the state plan state in Illinois. So let's focus on federal enforcement, since uh, most of the areas where we work in, in Region 6, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, they're all federal states. How, how does federal OSHA enforce the OSH Act? You know, going back and, and and I'm assuming for purposes of this question that we're talking about the health and safety side of things as opposed to the whistleblower side of things. 
for the health and safety side of things, you know, the offices are broken down into area offices and Texas has got roughly a dozen area offices. So like Houston, there's North and South Dallas, you have Dallas, you have Fort Worth, the Lubbock area office covers an enormous area, you know, San Antonio, Austin, Corpus, I'm sure I'm missing one or two, but you have the area offices. And the area offices using their compliance officers, sorry to interrupt you, but they conduct inspections, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And how do they decide who to inspect? So let's actually step, take a step back. So there are multiple types of inspections, right? Right. Yeah. That's where I wanted you to go. Thanks. You're you're welcome. So, I mean, I I view it, and I don't know how you view it, Frank, but I view it that there's basically three different types of inspections. So the first inspection, sort of the least intrusive type of inspection, is the complaint. And so, you know, an employee contacts OSHA and says, hey, there's a bad condition at my place of employment. And OSHA reached out to the employer with a complaint letter and basically says, Hey, look, you know, somebody reported this condition in your workplace, you know, can you respond to it? And, you know, then the employer has a a deadline with in which to respond. And that to me is one type of inspection. Do you agree? No, I agree. Yeah. So complaints are one. uh, And I, I would generally group, inspections into two other categories. Uh, I'm interested to see if we think this uh, through the same way. So uh, I'll, I'll sit here and listen to you. For the sake of our audience and the world as a whole, I'm hoping not, but I'm pretty confident <laughs> we do. So the other two types of inspections, so you have the, the RRI or rapid response investigation. So the rapid response investigation is you know kind of the halfway point between the complaint and the sort of the full-on inspection, the RRI, basically the employer uh, reports something happens, and this is how it typically happens, or at least in my experience. Employer reports a hospitalization, they report an amputation, they report whatever the situation is. And OSHA sends a letter out looking for, you know, basically a complete response, a complete investigation. And then once they do that, that response and investigation, kind of what the corrective measures are. More often than not, in my experience, it seems that, and I don't know what your experience has been, Frank, but it it, it seems while they're concerned about what happened, they're really kind of focused on what the abatement is, what the corrective measures are. What's your experience? No, I think that's right. I think whenever they send, when OSHA sends the rapid response investigation letter, they want an explanation from the employer to uh, to help the, the agency feel confident that there won't be an accident resulting from the issue raised in the RRI, whether it be an accident, an injury, or an employee complaint. That I, I think that the agency is looking for some reassurance. And uh, in my experience, that's what I tend to focus on is trying to identify, like you said, the abatement that uh, will give that assurance because nobody wants to be embarrassed. And if OSHA uh, gives you the opportunity, gives an employer the opportunity to write a response uh, to do their own investigation, basically, and, and make that assurance, OSHA don't want to be later embarrassed by having somebody re-injured or worse from the same condition that was raised in the RRI letter. That always is uh, my focus when I'm trying to address that. 
If now, you- I've got two questions for you about your response, Frank. And, and this, so our audience understands, Frank and I work together, and Frank and I are friends. But, and, and a lot before I say but, we do collaborate on a pretty regular basis. But generally speaking, the collaboration is kind of more big picture collaboration, not kind of really super granular collaboration. So these two questions I want to ask Frank are bona fide questions, not some made up stuff for this podcast. So Frank, question number one, do you use the form that OSHA sends out with the RRI for your response or not? Sometimes uh, I will use it if the client has already filled it out. But in general, I prefer to to write a, a more, for lack of a better word, a more fluent letter. I feel like the the investigation form has some redundancies, and maybe it's because I don't understand the thought process of the person who created that form. Maybe those aren't redundancies, but it feels to me like it asks the same question more than once. So my preference when I'm uh, assisting with a draft is to draft it from start to finish in a way that follows the outline, basically, that comes in the RRI packet. But I I like to make it more concise where I I don't feel like I'm repeating myself throughout. I'm exactly the same way. And and I much prefer kind of my own. I mean, I, I provide all the information that is sought in the, the RRI form. But I, I, I just, you know, I think that the RRI form itself doesn't lead itself to kind of a nice, fluid, you know, easily readable response. And so I like to kind of prose it up a little bit. I like to make it, I like to tell the client's story a little bit more. So here's my second question for you, Frank. To me, to a certain extent, the RRI response, you have to kind of strike that balance between providing enough information and maybe oversharing. And if you don't provide enough information, you run the risk of OSHA starting an actual full-blown inspection. And if you overshare, I think you're also kind of exposing yourself to, to more of a check. So here's the actual question with a lot of build up to it. And I apologize for that, Frank, and, and our dear listeners. But here's my question for you, Frank. If you were to guess on a percentage basis, how many times the RRI turns into, you know, a a full-blown inspection in your experience, what is that percentage? And what reasons do you see for the RRI response turning into a full-blown inspection? Personally, uh, when I've had a hand in helping draft, I haven't seen one turn into an inspection. But I have seen it turn into inspections in other cases where the, say, the uninitiated gave too much information. And I don't believe it's anything nefarious by the agency. But remember, my opening premise for responding to an RRI inquiry was that OSHA wanted a reassurance that what the employer was doing was going to keep employees safe. And I think sometimes. I've seen employers give too much information, or I shouldn't say too much, but but leave too many open ends, right, that they didn't wrap up, that raised other issues for OSHA. And it's kind of like during an OSHA inspection, if a compliance officer sees a condition that violates the OSHA Act, then once they're inside the gates, so to speak, 
they have an obligation to go inspect that area. And the, the same standard applies under an, uh, an RRI response is if they see something in that response that that raises another flag, then they either have to follow up and say, okay, thank you for your answer to the first question. Your answer raised another question. Here's another RRI letter. Uh, but every time that an office gets a complaint or sees a concern, every time an OSHA office uh, receives a complaint or a concern is raised to that office, the area director then has to look at that complaint or that concern and run it through their their metrics as to whether it merits an RRI letter or an actual inspection. And so that's that's when I see inspections occur when an extra issue is raised in a response in an RRI letter. It goes to the area director and the area director says, yeah, I can't send another RRI letter for this. We need to just go conduct an inspection based on our metrics. And so that that's when I see it occur. I haven't I can't think of a time where a specific response to a specific question caused an inspection to follow, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. I just can't think of a time when that happened. What about you? So I generally am lockstep in agreement with your answer. Uh, the the one place of deviation is I have had a couple of RRI responses that have led to kind of full out inspections. And, and generally speaking, What's ended up happening with those RRI responses that's led to that kind of full-out inspection is the client has had some concerns about sharing information about things that they were going to do in response to that incident. Not that they weren't going to do things, but they thought that by sharing that they were going to do A, B, and C, and maybe A, B, and C would shine some light on some other problem, they wanted to hold off on sharing that they were doing A, B, and C. And I think had we shared that we were going to do A, B, and C, the area director would have been very comfortable with the fact that, you know, look, this isn't going to come back and, and bite me in the future. And and so I don't need to send folks out to actually, you know, do a full-blown inspection of this employer. Um, but, you know, we kind of left the questions unanswered and, and that's caused some problems. I mean, to your point, Frank, and, and, and you know, I, I like the way you you kind of framed that up. You know, a lot of what is happening, and, and, and I think this is maybe undersold, and I, I'd like your, your thought on this, is you know, you've got folks who are in jobs who are those jobs involve layers and layers and layers of scrutiny above them. And, and a lot of what the employer needs to do relative to the inspection, relative to, to interaction with OSHA, at least in my experience, has been making sure that folks don't get embarrassed. And if you don't mind, I, I think that that's worth sharing with our audience, kind of your thoughts about making sure that we don't end up embarrassing the area director and the area officer, or, or even the regional administrator and his folks. What, could you talk to our audience a little bit about that, Frank? I think that's uh, that's a good point about embarrassment. I, I was trying to avoid using that word. But you remember, uh, I know you read the paper, you certainly read the headlines, OSHA has fallen under some scrutiny from the press, just like everybody else. And as a, a manager in an area office, if it were me, I would not want to see my name uh, associated with a, a negative enforcement action, right? Or, you know, one where I should have conducted an inspection and didn't. And it's, you know, it's tough on a career, even though people might think of folks in government as immune from those types of pressures. They aren't. Uh, they're 
trying to be successful. They're getting performance reviews, just like everybody else in, in the in the private sector or just like everybody in the private sector. So, uh, yeah, I certainly take those facts into consideration. And I'll transition from there to, to my next point about having a good complete, I'm going to call it an R2I letter, so I don't sound like a Mork from Mork and Mindy, the 80s show, RRRR. Remember how I used to laugh? So I'm going to, instead of RRI, I'm going to say R2I, see if I can coin a new phrase. But after that buildup, John, um, I'll say this. Sometimes I see where the R2I letter response ends in, and in the future, we're going to do these abatement items, which is, you know, in my opinion, I think that's sometimes necessary because those R2I letters have to come out so quickly. What I have found, and I'm interested in your thoughts, what I've found is if an employer is proposing future abatement actions, then OSHA is likely to come back and say, okay, fantastic. Thank you for your letter. Please contact us or follow up and give us the abatement information once you're completed uh, with the abatement. And so in terms of having a neat, conclusive end of the discussion letter and an R2I response, if there's any way possible that I can get all my abatement done before I submit the letter, that is my preference. Uh, not that, uh, that I'm trying to obscure anything from OSHA. I just always worry about screwing up and forgetting an abatement deadline. <laughs> I haven't ever, not in over 20 years, but I worry that something's going to slip through the cracks and that that leads, going back to your question about embarrassment, that leads to embarrassment for the company and, if, and maybe the OSHA office and I can't think of a, a way that would maybe create a worse relationship between an employer and an area office than if an employer said they're going to do something, OSHA gave them a break on it, and, and then there was bad press that came out of it. Oh, that would be mortifying. I mean, the R2I kind of led me to think of another, I guess, actually 70s as opposed to 80s, which is R2D2. No, I mean, that would be... It would be absolutely mortifying for that to be the case. My strong, strong recommendation to clients when we're submitting the the R2I response, to use your phraseology, is if we don't have the abatement complete. And, and OSHA certainly understands, you know, if you have to go out and buy equipment, if you have to get folks trained in a new activity, and maybe it's something that's outside the scope of the employer's expertise, and so they have to hire a third party. And, and given that some of these RRI responses are due, you know, in, in five days after you know something is reported to OSHA, you know, the timeline is just such that it's not able to get done. You know, certainly as the first point, you know, basically outlining what the timetable looks like, and secondly, you know, kind of you know really being transparent and open about what the steps are that you've taken, why the abatement can't be completed by the time the response is submitted, you know, kind of what your commitments are to that abatement or mitigation or corrective measure. And, and, and you know, I, I like to, and I don't know what your practice is, Frank, but I like to basically say, look, you know, when this is done, we're going to follow up with you with proof that this has actually taken place. And I think that when you do all those things, it tends to put the area director at ease that you know, you're not just telling him a story or her a story, 
you're actually committed to this and you've actually thought this through and this is going to get done. And, and they do expect you to follow up with, you know, the verification that you did the training or bought the equipment or, or whatever the case might be. But it, it tends to, I hate to use the word, be more sellable, but that's kind of the, the only phrase that's coming to mind this morning um, to the area office than if you just kind of, you know, at some point in the future, we're going to get this done. And I, I assume that's your experience as well. That is my experience. Uh, and as we close out this session of of uh, the John and Frank show, uh, I'm going to give you one more topic to consider. Uh, the R2I letter, I generally consider that to be a gift or a showing of good faith. Uh, I, I sometimes get questions, you know, do I have to complete it? Do I have to post it? I generally advise, yeah, I mean, let's let's respond to it. Because what's the consequence if an employer doesn't respond to uh, an R2I or a uh, or, or the requirement to post and such? Here's what my response was, and that is when you get that RRI response, or excuse me, that RRI letter, when you get the complaint letter, ignoring it is the worst thing you could possibly do, unless you actually want OSHA to show up and do a full-blown inspection. <laughs> because OSHA is going to come and OSHA is going to do a full-blown inspection. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, yeah. Well, so let's be clear about that. Not that I have advised a client to ignore one or, or, or you know, fail to post it or whatever. But, you know, I mean, and I'm sure this has happened to you as well, Frank. I've had clients, you know, basically frantically call saying, Hey, we got this RRI letter, didn't respond, and OSHA's at the door because we didn't respond. Yep. Had the very same thing happen multiple times. And often you get to hear about it in the opening conference. Hey, we sent an RRI, you didn't respond, and here we are. Oh, well, we'll fill it out now. We're going to go ahead and do the inspection now, but thank you for your kind offer. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, that's exactly how that conversation goes. And, you know, I mean, look, it, it's... It's, it's like if you, you know, leave a voicemail for somebody, people expect a response. And if they don't get a response, you know, they may escalate and, and you can't blame anybody. I don't blame them. I don't. I mean, because they're handcuffed. Now they've sent, they've, they've thought the issue was important enough to send an R2I letter. And the employer, I haven't had an employer do it just because they were being jerks about it, but it maybe. Yeah, I would chalk it up to accident or not understanding what the expectation is. Uh, but what is OSHA to do? They, they're left with no choice. Uh, so I, I don't blame them for it either. John, great conversation. I enjoyed talking about the, the uh, RRI letters. Um, when we come back next time, everybody should be prepared to listen to us talk about employer duties during a traditional on-site inspection. So, John, thanks so much. Hey, Frank, as always, it's a pleasure. It's always good talking with you. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.